there. All right, hey everybody, welcome to Talking Christianity Apologetics. My name is Josh Gibbs, and tonight we're continuing our conversation with Scott Smith on uh, part two for rethinking the extent of the atonement. Um, in Talking Christianity, what we're trying to do is seek, um, really seeking to provide an answer for both, uh, for questions to both um, saved and the non-saved or Christians or non-Christians alike. And uh, for those who may have missed the last episode, let me encourage you to go and listen to it in full. Um, we did receive a lot of interaction uh, on that last episode, and we didn't really even get into a whole lot of the meat of the subject itself. Um, so if you enjoyed that, you're really going to enjoy the next few episodes. And uh, what we decided to do in this episode is to engage with some of the comments and some of the questions that we got. Um, so uh, some of those th that you guys have actually sent in to us on Facebook, on email, on Twitter, some of the different platforms that you may have viewed it uh, through. And uh, we encourage you to continue to send that feedback in. Uh, so the goal of this podcast is simply, really, we want to better establish what the main issues of the atonement um, what main issues of the atonement actually need to uh, be resolved with sin, and then we're going to answer some of the objections that have arisen, uh, which I just mentioned. So stay tuned. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. I think to what the scriptures teach, I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. And he has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them, and they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. Okay, again, thank you for tuning in with us. Uh, I want to follow up on one thing, guys. Um, being that we are responding to some of the comments and questions that have come in online, I do want to continue to encourage you uh, to continue to do that. Um, the best way to do it would be um, to contact us through the voicemail app, which you can do through um, any of the podcasting platforms that you may be listening to. Uh, if you just go into the description box of any given episode, it'll give you an option to leave voicemail. Just click that link and you'll be able to do that. You can email us at gibbsj, G-I-B-B-S-J, 1086 at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook at Joshua Gibbs. Uh, you can find me at, on Twitter. My handle is at the real J Gibbs, and uh, the is, is spelled T H A, uh, real J Gibbs. Uh, we're on Periscope, Joshua Gibbs, and on YouTube, uh, which is going to be uh, that's going to be the Talking Christianity Apologetics YouTube site. And if you would just go ahead and help us share the word, get this out there for other people um, while we're live. 
and uh, even if even if you're not viewing live you can still share it but if you are viewing it live you can always start a watch party uh, with your friends and uh, you can engage with some of the comments uh, as we go through through the live version there so uh, also if you feel so inclined we mentioned it before you can donate to the channel we are uh, listener supported now the same way that you would leave a voicemail just go into that description box of whatever podcasting platform you're listening to and uh, you can click the uh, you can click there's a link in there to donate to uh, this uh, this podcast so uh, let's see we've got upcoming episodes this is going to be part two of at least a four or five part series um, and I think it's the more that we get into it the more information is going to come out and uh, it's going to be really exciting as we as we get into some of the more the more details and the exegetical side and the scriptural side and you guys continue to engage with us. We love that. So, and I think that you'll be able to see that in this episode tonight, um, that there is, there is a lot of engagement. There's some good questions that you guys are coming up with, and I think there's good answers that needed to be provided for those, answer, uh, for those questions, and we'll, we'll get into it. So, uh, let's see. As, as we get in, on October 30th, we're going to have Jeff Riddle on, and Jeff Riddle is kind of leading a movement in America, if you want to call it a movement. He, in fact, just did a podcast recently um, on defining whether it is a movement or not. Uh, some people are calling it the confessional text. Others call it the ecclesiastical text or the canonical text. Um, but really, it's it's going to be an interesting podcast when it comes to different Bible versions that are out there today and uh, what, what text those Bible versions came from. So that's going to be interesting. Uh, stay tuned for that on October 30th. Uh, then we're doing another follow-up episode on the same exact subject from a different perspective with James Snap. Um, so that's going to be another good episode when it comes to uh, the text the Bible comes from. So, okay, now let's go ahead and get into it. I'm going to pull Scott Smith up on the screen with us. See if I can get that over to Scott. Cool. Hey, Scott, thanks again for joining us for part two. I'm really looking forward to it. Hey, thanks for having me back. Hey, it's good to be back and welcome back. So I want to kind of just to get started, in order to bring people up to speed for the discussion here, could you please succinctly state for us what you are arguing for in your view of the atonement? Uh, sure. So I'm arguing that Christ's penal substitutionary death atoned for all people's sins, paying the penalty of death that they were due to eternally pay, so that all people, regardless of being a believer or unbeliever, are resurrected. And of those who believe in what Christ has done for them in his death, he applies his blood to cleanse them from their sin and join in covenant with them so that they get eternal life. I see. Okay, so if you would remind us again, why the name Pananastasism? Well, that's just a fancy theological term I coined to help distinguish the view from other views. The term is intended to highlight the distinction of my view that one of the teachings, uh, hence the word ism is a suffix kind of representing teaching, of the Bible is that atonement directly relates to all, so that's the pan prefix in, for, from Greek, all people, and so it's a universal, it's unlimited view of a penal substitutionary atonement, or at least an aspect of the atonement, uh, being resurrected. The transliteration of the Greek word anastasis means resurrection. So we end up with 
panastasism. Now, the average churchgoer, panastasism is a little too heavy a term. You know, it's, it's maybe something that's a little hard to grasp. Yeah, no doubt. So often when, when you get to talking to somebody about uh, different topics in the Bible, like, say, the hypostatic union, uh, you have conversations with people about monergism versus synergism, uh, or even terms that are pretty basic, but they're still they're still a, kind of a, a tough terminology to use, would be like soteriology or eschatology, um, just words like that in general. Uh, most people would either get a glazed over look on their face or just kind of say, like, what in the world are you talking about? Um, so it seems like those terms, they're essential um, to Christian doctrine, uh, but it not all the time. It's not all the time that people are really familiar with those terms. Um, if just from my perspective, yeah, that's true. I think, but but those theology terms do help out the theologians. They make their life easier in discussing concepts, tagging them with a label. But they do kind of just become jargon to to lay people. So panastasism is a label for this concept about atonement. And, you know, maybe a simpler label might be something like the twofold atonement or something. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's what's important to me is that people grasp the concept, uh, whatever they end up deciding to label it. Uh, hopefully they won't label it heresy, but that's, you know, part of why I'm uh, trying to defend. It point. doesn't matter what stance you take. <laughs> somebody's going to label it heresy. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Now, if you don't mind, I want to expand a little bit on the, the succinct statement that I just gave. The, the concept here is that Christ's atonement functions in two ways. So this is by God's design and intent. One is universal in extent, and the other one is particular in extent. So corporately, universally, Christ's death is the penal substitution that enacts a definite universal atonement definite in that it will objectively occur regardless of faith and so the extent of it is universal atoning in that it makes people legally reconciled to god and the result is that everyone gets released from the penalty of death by the resurrection now christ's penal substitution is the legal grounds by which god can righteously release people from his own penalty of death then individually or particularly Christ's blood is applied to believers only, who are those who choose to receive and identify with them, which enacts first the particular cleansing of the individuals from their sinfulness, and then two, it, it covenants them with God. So these two things done for the individuals then means they are relationally reconciled to God and are no more under the judgment and punishment of his wrath. I'm getting a little feedback from you right at the moment. Oh, are you? I am. Uh, uh, I don't, don't know. Why. I can't hear it on my end. I'm sorry. I don't know. Okay. I don't know what it could be. Well, as long as it's not getting recorded, we should be good. I think it. Okay. I think it's. It shouldn't be. All right. So he has chosen to uh, account their faith as righteousness, and uh, they're viewed then as having equal righteousness to his own because of that, and he's taken them into his family and to have eternal life and to be glorified with him. Okay. So I know we promised to get into some of the biblical support for Pan-Anastasism's view of the atonement, but um, I think before we do, uh, make sure that you send your questions or your comments in whatever platform that you're on. 
uh, we do want to make sure that we engage with those. And so, for instance, here's a comment from uh, Brian Tiura. It's in a soteriology forum that I'm in. Uh, this would be soteriology, New Covenant Theology, and other biblical stuff. Uh, that's the name of the, the forum. Uh, well, it's actually, it's actually a group on Facebook, but um, he, w this is the comment which is worth addressing up front, I think. He comments, I'd be interested to know what Scott's um, contribution actually seeks to solve. And uh, so that's a question that I think is something that we can ask right up front in this episode to you, Scott, is can you clarify that for us? What contribution are you actually seeking to solve in the conversation of the atonement here? All right. Well, for me, the main things that I wrestled with for years, as I kind of talked about last time, that needed to be resolved were the fact that uh, to be faithful to normal hermeneutics. So keeping the plain reading of the universal text as being universal. One has to do, in my mind, exegetical contortion, reading into the text to make those passages fit a limited or particularist view. And everyone except the particularists, I think, have this right, that those are, in fact, universal texts. The second thing was is to be faithful to logic. So keeping penal substitution as actual, so not just potential, and wholly effectual for what it accomplishes. And this is something that really only the particularists and the plenarists have right, because they understand the fact that a substitution requires an actual effect to occur. And all of that, so keeping the, the faithfulness to normal hermeneutics, the faithfulness to logic, and then faithfulness to scripture in the sense that understanding what God is saying about universal penal substitution in a way that does not lead to universalism so that all people are saved, like what the plenarist view that I talked about last time would hold to. Since scripture is obviously clear in keeping uh, final distinction of full salvation to only those who have faith, everyone but the plenarist has this aspect right. So those three points, I would say, are, are what I was going for. Uh I see. I, so. I just unmuted my mic, so that might be what you're hearing. Um, it it'll unmute, and then you, you can kind of hear it. Picks up a lot of background on my side. So, anyways, okay. All right, go ahead. So, solving what most theologians said couldn't be solved, so to speak, uh, that they felt like something had to give in these points, one way or the other, which is why different people have taken the particular positions that they've taken, and. You know, I don't see that there has to be a contradiction. That's what some would think. Uh, or that heresy has to occur, that you end up in universalism. So solving these things was my goal. And, and those three points were what was stewing in the back of my mind a number of years while I sought God for an answer to bring them together. And believing that there had to be some kind of an answer to that was non-contradiction, non-heretical, solution for this. And so for me, when the solution to these points did come, it also solved an issue I hadn't even considered really a problem until reading the text helped me to, to solve this whole thing. And it brought these three points together. So John 5, 28 and 29, and I'm quoting from the New King James, 
Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And while it's not part of my initial grasping of the solution, the companion verse to that would be Acts 25.15, where Paul's speaking and he says, I have hope in God that they, the Pharisees themselves, uh, also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. I see. So I've got a question. In in John 5, um, you said that this kind of changed it for you. Uh, my question to you would be, so what about that verse in John 5 helped solve uh, that particular question for you? So the, the day the solution came to those three points, it came from that passage as the answer to the question that was in my mind for this time, that if death is the penalty for sin, then why does God resurrect those who have done evil at all? Why not just leave them in judgment that he laid down for them, leave them in death? Because that's what I believe should have happened and based off what scripture is saying. And so it just hit me that the resurrection of all people is what Christ came to die for. His death as a substitute for their death that they deserved for sin, ensuring God maintained his own righteousness when resurrecting sinners from the penalty that he had put in force. So that last part is the fourth point that until the solution came, I hadn't even really considered the ramifications of that, that God made and enacts the death penalty for sin. He is why people die because of their sin. That is the penalty he put in place. So it would be unrighteous or unjust of him to reverse the penalty without an equally just cause to to do so, to reverse it. That righteous cause is Christ's atonement for humanity. I see. Okay. So, Scott, I'm sitting here listening to you describe the relationship of the atonement to the resurrection of the just and to the unjust both. And I can't help but notice that you're placing the reach of Adam's fall to all of humanity in the physical arena regarding death. And there's many who would actually say that when Adam fell, the image of God fell with him. And therefore, since Adam didn't die the same day that he ate of the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, um, that it was a spiritual death. So since, since Adam didn't actually die physically the day that he ate of the fruit of the tree and the knowledge of good and evil, there would basically break down two questions based off of what you just said there um, that I would have for you. One would be, you're saying that physical death is the penalty for sin. Is that correct? Right. Okay. So now, how would that be related to the fall? And uh, what about the second death? Isn't that penalty for sin? And... I want to point to a post um, from another group that I follow on Twitter from uh, a fellow named Michael Beck. He actually wrote in um, after watching the video and he put it this way. He says, the claim that everyone has the penalty for sin paid by Christ, but then some still get punished for their sin is just weird. He says, is it paid or is it not? If it's paid, then there's nothing to punish them for. If it's not, then they're not being saved at all. And being resurrected only to face eternal damnation in physical form is so completely redefining the word, the term being saved, uh, means that it has pretty much lost its meaning. 
And he goes on to say, physical resurrection has nothing to do with salvation. So <laughs> what would your response be to that? Well, he, he's somewhat approaching it basically from, from a standard double jeopardy argument that particularists uh, use against non-particularist views, universal views. So let me try to make this more clear and in the process hopefully answer the objection. My defense of physical death, I think, as the legal penalty is actually greatly improved from what I originally wrote in my dissertation. So to begin, I find in scripture three major issues that sin has caused, each needing a solution. Uh, two of those issues, however, group under, I would say, a single heading. So the three major issues fall under the categories of legal, natural, and relational. But the latter two, the natural and the relational, are more intimately tied together because the natural drives the relational issue. So let me explain these a bit more. Okay. Um, <laughs> yes, please do. It, this is it. Let me switch cameras here. I want it. You guys can see me when I talk and Scott. So, okay. So to me, this is going to answer a lot of the questions that some of you guys might be asking right off. And uh, right now regarding the need for Scott's proposed solution to rethinking the extent of the atonement. So um, just stay, stay with us, stay tuned and Scott, I'll let you keep going. All right. So first, the first issue we have what's called a deontological or legal issue, a legal penalty. Legal in that it's a law, indeed the original law to Adam, Genesis 2.17, laid down by God to which a penalty was associated. Now, I argue that the penalty is the first or the physical death. Now, even if not viewed as the penalty, the standard view throughout history is that physical death is an effect in some way by Adam's original sin. We see that from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and 14 specifically. And so physical death is at least one consequence of sin. As such, it is something that everyone needs saved from in order to be classified as saved at all. So physical death and this bodily resurrection, in contrast to what the, the poster had in his question, is very much a salvific issue. God designed people as a union of body and spirit. God breathed into Adam's body formed from the earth, and Adam became a living soul in Genesis 2-7. So if God had left humanity in physical death, believers and unbelievers alike, then no salvation of humanity as he designed it would be able to come about. Okay, so my question would be, why would you hold that physical death is what is referred to in Genesis 2-17 when we're talking about uh, the image of God specifically with Adam and uh, the fall? So if he could answer that, that'd be great. Okay, so... I, that's a good question. There's a number of reasons, I think, to not, what I would say, eisegete some other idea of death into that passage. First, linguistically, if one really studies all the other uses of the Hebrew term mut, death, in the Old Testament, outside of Genesis, so outside of chapters 2 and 3, which is what we're talking about here, of which there's five uses of that term in, in those passages, in those chapters, one's going to see really an amazing thing. Nearly all of over the 1,000 uses of that root word are references to physical death in the Old Testament. The occurrence of it, the promise of it, the command for it, uh, the killing action to bring it about, 
those kinds of things. There's only maybe about 26 or so that might be considered figurative uses of the term in some fashion. Okay. And and even some of those are, are kind of questionable as to whether to take them figuratively or not, I would say. But that means you know those 26 uses are less than 3% of the uses in the Old Testament. Huh. I see. Well, um, so that's a small number. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My question would be, how does that relate to this passage in particular and its usage here? And uh, did Adam really die the same day that he ate of the fruit, or was God speaking figuratively in that passage? Well, let me hold off the same day question and answer here for just a second until I get through a few more points. But realize, you know, figurative use of language is perfectly fine, you know, in, in language, even in a normal grammatical hermeneutic. But figurative language does require one understand the literal usage in order to have any explanatory power behind it. So if someone doesn't know what death means to begin with, then using death in a figurative sense isn't going to help anyone understand what it is you're trying to say, because they've got to understand the literal before they can even understand the figurative. But now second... The second point here I want to make is that in the immediate context, in Genesis 2, 17, where the word's used twice, and in Genesis 3, verses 3 and 4, uh, and, in chapter, and in verse 4 there, it's used twice, argues against a figurative use, because, first of all, it's the first uses in Scripture. It's far more likely that the literal sense, I think, of the term is intended. Now, one might try to argue that it refers to a literal spiritual death, which is part of your question that you're talking about. But such an abstract use of the term really does not exist within the Old Testament. If you study out all the other uses, it would need the explanatory power of understanding literal physical death to even grasp the abstract literal concept potentially of a spiritual death. Now, obviously, culturally, the Jews could have grasped an abstraction in their day. It, you know, we can't discount that possibility because it's not like they're learning their own language from reading the Bible. They already knew their language. But the immediate context still does not leave it, I don't think, to be wondered about. Genesis 3.19 makes it pretty clear that, you know, what God meant by death. He says, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So this return to dust, of course, refers back to the creation of mankind in Genesis 2. But also, to further iterate it, in Genesis 3.22, God ensures physical death will happen by ejecting them from the Garden of Eden, where they might still have had access to eat the tree of life and live forever. So we have two, I would say, unmistakable contextual clues in Genesis 3 about this judgment. There is more, though, than just this aspect here of the immediate context as one looks to try and understand what it is that God's saying regarding death and death as the penalty for sin. So the next point, the third point I'd say, is that the following context emphasis is loaded with and primarily about physical death. So Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. That's the first physical death of any person. Genesis 5 reiterates over and over, and he died, and he died, showing the 
nearly ubiquitous consequences of sin. Enoch is the only exception to death there. And that's, in a lot of ways, that uh, exception makes it stand out. So this is the section where people are dying despite not having sinned like Adam. That's what Romans 5.14 uh, is in part refers to. And it's why that in Adam all die like 1 Corinthians 15, 22 talks about. So Genesis chapters 6 through 8 are all about God wiping out you know, nearly every living human soul on the planet because of their wickedness through the flood. And so in short, the five chapters following Genesis 3 are screaming, I'd say, at the reader, physical death was the penalty for sin. And yet there's still further proof. Fourth, hermeneutically, properly understanding the phrasing in Genesis 2.17, especially, but also 3.4, because the same phrasing is used again, is critical to not getting caught in one of the main reasons people even seek another meaning for, than physical death. You know, in other words, why they tend to move towards spiritual death. And you've already mentioned it, but it says there in Genesis 2.17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So because of the phrasing, people are led to believe that since physical death did not come to Adam in the day he ate, death must mean something else. Yeah. Now, yeah, I, I commend that they are trying in that thought, they're trying to maintain the truthfulness of God's word. You know, that he said they're going to die that day, so it must mean they're going to die somehow. But the problem is that it's not necessary to do that. It, it's not proper interpretation of the passage, I don't think, think, to seek another meaning there for that. So that uh, I've got to ask, why, why is that? And that's where I'm ready. I'm ready for this part. So why is that? Well, that, it's because the, the phrasing that's translated there as surely die, it, it's a doubled up use of the Hebrew word for death. So it's an infinitive absolute form coupled with the verb itself. And if we study that particular combination out in the Old Testament, we find that the phrasing is a legal statement of what the penalty will be, or at least should be, for something. It's the same phrasing used in Exodus 21 twice to refer to what the penalty for both murder and then for cursing one's parents was to be. It's the same phrasing in Exodus 31 for not keeping the Sabbath day. It's the same Phrasing as in, uh, as in Leviticus chapter 20, for giving children to the pagan god Moloch and for those that were committing adultery. So God is only saying that in the day they eat, they come under the legal judgment of having to die for sin. I see. It's a condemnation that is, is God's condemnation, but it's what the serpent in the temptation in Genesis 3-4 is lying about and saying, that's not going to happen, Eve. You know, just go ahead and eat. Yet in the day they ate, they and all their descendants came under God's legal condemnation that they were to die. And so, as a general rule, as Hebrews 9.27 states, it's appointed for men to uh, die once, but after this, the judgment. So the appointment to death is God's legal penalty. The judgment is something more a, a, as a consequence of sin, something distinct from the consequence of first death. And this should help answer the really the original objection. There are two consequences for sin. 
physical death and a further possible judgment, which brings up the final point of why death should be taken as physical death in this passage, is that the New Testament concept of second death is clearly the judgment referred to in Hebrews 9.27. It seems clear to me. It is the result of the final great white throne judgment is the second death. So this implies, first of all, there is another type of death prior to the second death that's associated with sin. And two, that there is only one other type of death associated with sin. That is, first death is physical death, and second death is the eternal one in the lake of fire. Spiritual death, so we're getting back to your kind of original statement about spiritual death, is a phrase that's not found in Scripture itself, and I think it's an unfortunate and misleading theological label for something that is a right and true concept. So misleading because spiritual death has turned Christians away from recognizing the two deaths that Scripture does emphasize, and it is often this concept that tries to be forced into the Genesis 2.17 reading there is, is that that's a spiritual death. I've got to say this real quick. I'm, I'm, intera- I'm cutting in, but I just thought of this. If, 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 if that really is the case that when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil, that they did die spiritually, that would, that would be the first death. And then the second death would have to be when you physically die. So t- that would logically create a, a problem, but I, I just I wanted to interject there. That just kind of hit me just now. So anyways. Yeah, uh, I think most people that believe that it's spiritual death try to get around that by saying that the, that the spiritual death's natural consequence or whatever is physical death. Yeah. Uh, but I... I I think that's just a way of trying to get around that fact in part. So the second death, though, I mean, it's regularly alluded to in the New Testament, I think, uh, as is the first death. Uh, even if it's not made explicit, the second death is not made explicit until the book of Revelation that, that it's called second death. So when Christ at times notes that believers will never die, he's clearly not referring to the first death, but the second He has to be, because we as believers still die, physically. Uh, We see kind of, I think this played out a little bit in Ephesians chapter 2. It says we were dead in trespasses and sins, and most people say, well, that means spiritual death. But I say that that's Paul is referring to the fact that that we were under the penalty of physical death. So it's a, a proleptic or future statement of the fact that by our trespasses and sins, we were due to physically die. And then also, in that same passage, we were by nature children of wrath until we believed. So we see there in that passage both the points that I'm referring to, the physical death and the wrath side of things that need to be taken care of. So I believe, given a straightforward reading of the text of Scripture, God, especially there in the Old Testament, could not have made it much clearer that Scripture's persistent argument is that spirit uh, spiritual. Now I've got myself saying <laughs> I got Physical death is the penalty for sin, uh, followed by the further judgment after that for those that don't believe. Okay. So um, where, in, in that regard then, where would the second death fit in? And why exactly is that not double jeopardy um, or paying a penalty for sin twice? So first, it is Christ's substitution a, a payment 
in your view, if you could, if you could take that and run with it. Yeah, I, Christ's death is a is a penal payment for every individual's death. So by substituting his physical death for what should have been our eternal physical death, he makes a payment, and by definition, then an exchange. A payment is is always an exchange. All payments are substitutions. Not all substitutions are necessarily payments. Um, so when you pay for something. You're giving something in exchange for something else, usually money for some goods or service, that kind of thing is obviously what we're most. Okay. Now, um, in this regard, on this particular subject for double payment, I was in your dissertation, you write on pages 74 and 75, um, there's a note for Gary Williams and his expansion of John Owen's original trilemma. And in Williams' expanded argument against the universal atonement, which he pulled from his, his chapter on uh, punishment God cannot twice inflict from the book From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, you, you summarize his view uh, under four options. A universal atonement person has to take to logically hold to a universal extent in relation to penal substitution. Now I'm going to kind of expand those four points here. So one, uh, Williams' root dilemma with a universal atonement is the same as John Owen's, that everyone's sin is paid, uh, but for those ultimately lost, there is a double payment for sin, one by Christ, one by the person in eternity. This double payment is seen as an injustice to the one being punished, and God is not unjust. Now, point number two, you say, one solution William sees to the injustice, which is also Owen's other side of the coin, is everyone's sin is paid, and so everyone is saved. That would be universal salvation, or as you stated last week, the plenarist view of atonement in your categorization. So uh, point number three is another solution that William sees is that the object of the atonement gets redefined uh, such that the atonement is not dealing with actual individuals or their sins, but this solution would not be a penal substitutionary view. And then finally, number four, the final possibility William sees is the nature of the atonement gets redefined such as uh, that it's not a payment or penal substitution. So have I stated William's points well? Um, and how would you actually answer the dilemma as he and Owens have stated it and the original objection from that comment? Yeah, I, I think you stated his position well. Uh, first, it should be noted, I think, that God has a clear precedent uh, at times of punishing sin doubly. So for instance, in dealing with Israel, God says in Jeremiah 16, 18, I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin. And in Jeremiah 17, 18, the prophet calls for this because of the, their treatment, Israel's treatment of him. I see. He says, destroy them with double destruction. And then Isaiah 40, verse two of Jerusalem, uh, that city has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And the phrasing shows up again in Revelation 18.6 against Babylon the Great, where it says, Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. So for those that have greatly sinned against God, there apparently is not any injustice in God's mind of meeting out double punishment. Such, I think, is the gravity of sin in his mind. But I do concede the fact that nevertheless, I think everyone would agree that Christ's payment is of such value, such high value, that it should cover any amount, double, triple, whatever was owed. And so 
I don't think, though, that sins or the payment that get, really gets calculated like that. It's not quite that commercial. That'd be more like yeah. John Owen's finely grained commerci- commerciality of atonement. It's it's just death for death is what we're talking about here. Uh, and so there's still, I think, a valid sense to the objection in the way that Williams and Owen state it with respect to penal substitution. But what I think they both miss is the distinction of the two types of punishment. So as outlined in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. There are two punishments for sin, death and the judgment that follows. But the one that follows, that judgment that follows, the penalty of death, is not a penalty. That is, it is not a legal punishment that can be paid. It, it's not penal. It's a relational punishment based off the value of one's works in God's sight. So Christ's penal substitution has only paid in full the legal issue of the physical death, the penalty. Christ did not take on the Father's wrath in his penal substitution. Wrath is not something that can be paid. It will either be experienced or the infraction that elicited the wrath will be forgiven and the wrath is not expressed. So... That's kind of the way I see. So I think that you're making a pretty clear distinction that there's two biblical types of punishment for sin, which would be legal and relational, and physical death and God's wrath. Is that right? Right. Okay. And you're saying only one of those is paid for by Christ, which would be the legal penalty. So the question is whether there's also a warrant for God's forgiveness and therefore relief from... uh, his wrath. Would that be correct as well? Yes. So okay. uh, that's exactly right. Uh, I established that the penalty of physical death was for a specific breaking of God's law by Adam. And all sin falls under the penalty as all sin is a breaking of God's laws. But second death is a consequence for a different type of judgment. And that leads back to our other two non-legal issues that group together under that broad heading of, of a really a spiritual issue. So uh, recall that spiritual or eternal, the eternal issue, the spiritual issue means that those people are unprepared and will experience the second or eternal death. And this is because of, well, really two well-recognized consequences of sin, theologically speaking. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time defending these points because I don't think there's a lot of debate amongst people on this, but there's natural and there's relational issues to sin. So ontologically, the natural issue is the whole person, material, immaterial, has been made sinful by nature. Sin infects us. Even believers uh, who have been born again with a sinless spirit inside them still have a sinful flesh, Romans 7, 17, and 18 notes, that dirties the spirit on this side of the resurrection. So uh, our death frees us from sin. Romans 6, 7 talks about this. And I think it's part of God's mercy that his penalty for sin is also what sheds sinful flesh from our regenerated spirit. And if we have identified with Christ and his death, 
then we can even be free now from sin's power and influence. That's kind of the argument of Romans 6.18. But notice that two things need fixed here, the immaterial and the material part of the person. A person needs a regenerated spirit, and this only comes at the time of faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. And second, a person needs a resurrected body that is free from sin, that is incorruptible. Uh, so it's not subject to bodily death. God has promised to provide the latter part, the incorruptible body, to everyone. That's the objective good news he has provided by his death, to free from death and provide a new body capable of life. But God has only promised the new spirit to those who believe on him, and it's only those that get eternal life. So, if one ends up resurrected without a regenerated spirit, then the sinfulness of that person's spirit remains forever. And I believe its corrupting influence affects why the flames of the second death, in fact, burn and hurt. And while the worms that do not die, which Christ refers to, can eat that body forever, never consuming it, because the body with the sinful spirit inside was purchased by Christ and is immortal. I've got to, I want to interject here. I know... I know you were you had mentioned earlier that there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of debate on this subject, but um, th there is. There's 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 actually quite a debate that's going on right now on this particular subject, whether on the eternality of the resurrected body of the unjust versus the just. I at some point maybe maybe uh, maybe we can have a discussion about that particular view, but um, that's not something we're addressing tonight. So I don't want to go down that rabbit trail. So. Anyways, I wanted to throw that in there for the audience. Yeah. Maybe some of you guys have kind of got into that argument. So anyways. Well, and, and what I meant by not debate on it was the sinfulness of man. That was the part I was referring to that, that that's not really debated that, that, that right. man is sinful. Uh, but you're right. Whether or not uh, the unsaved have immortal bodies or not, you know, that does get debated. And whether or not there's eternal conscious torment in hell or not, that gets debated. Yeah. So, uh, so this, uh, this end is exactly what God wants, uh, to save people from. He does not want them to experience this eternal state of being in, in locked in with their sins and experiencing the, the flames and so forth. So, the second death then relates also to the second subpoint, the interpersonal or the relational issue, the relationship with God uh, has been severed. So we have a sinful body, sinful spirit to begin with. God fixes those things up for believers. And then there's also when we're in our sinfulness that we have this relationship with God issue. And I like to refer to this as a relational rift. But it is the separation from the living God that is labeled often the spiritual death by many. So I believe, in the, again, in the concept of what spiritual death refers to, I just don't think the terminology is good because I think it points away from what Scripture is saying about how these things function. And, and so spiritual death tends to get conflated into that penalty for sin, like we just talked about. So... This is a relational issue, not a penal issue, not a legal issue. 
it is um, the relation of the creator to the creature, of the designer to the product specifications that he designed for man, so to speak, of and of whether or not one is accepted uh, as a son of God or as an enemy of God. So this relational rift is only fixed by people being right, as in righteous, even as God has designed humanity to be. They, he designed them to be like him. But such righteousness now, with our sinfulness, only comes by faith. And you know that's the grace of God that it even comes by that. But by God, God accounts us uh, in this life here righteous by faith. And then I believe at the resurrection we are remade righteous. We're, we will be like him. So if people are not like him, his wrath is upon them. And so the judgment that people face, that second consequence for sin, is whether people stand righteous in God's sight or not at the judgment. Has this person been cleansed from their sin in their spirit and resurrected into sinless bodies and made righteous? Or are they trying to stand there before God in their own righteousness, which is but filthy rags in God's sight? So this is important because of what God intends to do in eternity, I think, which is manifest his full glory into creation. And so if one tries to stand in their own righteousness, when God's wrath comes in the form of the second death, they're, they're out of luck. <laughs> I think I noted in the last podcast that I believe uh, that, that that place that they are cast into, that is a lake of fire because it is there in their unprepared ability to experience the full extent of who God is. And so instead, they experience God's manifested glory in creation through his awesome aspect as the consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29. And so they face being punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. The from in that passage sometimes gets translated as away from in some translations, but I don't think that's the right thing. I know that it's a common view that people are separated from God eternally in, in the lake of fire. I think it's the opposite. I think they are very much also experiencing the very presence of God, and it's from that presence that the fires are upon them. And the fire is forever purging them of their sinfulness, so to speak, just like uh, the Old Testament sacrifices would be burnt up. The burnt offerings were completely consumed. So this destruction is what God seeks to save people from if they will believe. That is, he wants to save believers from his wrath, not unbelievers. And in saving believers, then, when God manifests into the new creation— they experience, believers experience his glory as it's intended, as glory, not as flames. They experience it as light, not as darkness. And uh, it says of New Jerusalem, it says, for the glory of God illuminated it, Revelation 21, 23. So to summarize then, there's two aspects, I think, to salvation. For God to save anyone, including believers, he first needed, to fix, uh, needed that fix to save them by handling his own penalty for sin, which was physical death. 
And this he did by graciously dying for all people. So in Adam all die, so in Christ, in his death payment, shall all be made alive. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. That's the corporate or universal aspect that Pananastasism holds to. Then for God to especially save some people from his judgment of their sinful nature that's punishable by wrath, he made faith or a trust in him as the pivoting factor in who he chooses to cleanse and ultimately make righteous again in that resurrection. There's no double jeopardy. Sin is not paid for twice. Rather, there is a payment for only one thing, the resurrection out of the penalty. And all get this. And then there is an application of Christ's blood for cleansing and joining believers to God so that wrath does not come. I've got to say here, I'm, I'm going to interrupt just for a second. That I think that is a huge point when it comes to um, explaining the extent of the atonement and, penal, and the penal substitution view regarding double jeopardy and what the sin payment is and what, what Christ has accomplished based off his intent. All of those things that that surround the conversation of the atonement itself. So um, I like the way you put that. So I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> okay. So, well, so both are salvific. Uh, both are needed to be saved in the fullest extent of what we think of as the term, because uh, we need to be saved from both of the consequences. So we see an alignment between the two consequences, again, expressed in Hebrews 9.27, where it said it's pointed unto men, uh, to die once, but after this, the judgment, which equates to the two deaths in Scripture. And it's also aligned to the two levels of salvation that are expressed in the work of God through Christ in 1 Timothy 4.10, where it says, the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And that succinctly states that there are two salvific aspects, one universal, one particular to believers. God does intend to actually save all people in some way, and that way is abundantly apparent from Scripture that it is from his appointment to the first death for sin. In a like-saving manner, God does intend to actually save only believers from his final judgment of their nature, a judgment that is the full expression of his wrath. There is no potentiality in either aspect of his saving of efforts, God does not achieve, or God, God does achieve both aspects to their fullest extent of the groups that he intends to apply each aspect towards. Believers get both of the aspects, unbelievers only the first, because they did not believe in what God was planning to do for them. Now, I've got to say, I've, I've probably read and used. First Timothy 4.10, I don't even know how many times in relation to a provisional aspect of the atonement. And just just for me, I've, I don't know that I've ever considered it the way that you put it there um, in, in regard to um, this statement. I'll just read it. It says, because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. So I don't, I, I, I think that when I thought about it from a provisionalist standpoint, um, that it was provided for all men, not necessarily applied to all men, because obviously that would be, oh, we, we can't go there. Uh, that's universalism. Uh, but hearing it, the way that you're breaking it down, to me, it just, it really draws out the distinction of the element of faith 
and the penalty of sin and and what what the atonement actually accomplished. But um, so in everything that you well, just, let me yeah go ahead. Let, let me mention uh, in my dissertation I, I talk about the fact that that verse there, First Timothy four ten. Uh, in order for it to really have the explanatory power that it should have there, it, it only has the one verb. It says, who is the savior of all men, right. especially those that believe. So in order for there to be an, a special aspect, there has to be a lesser aspect, but that lesser aspect can't just be potential. There, right. There's something real there yeah. that's being stated. And that was, you know, I think one of the key points in why, this to me, panastasism fits better with what Scripture's saying. It does, and it it opens it up for me. And I think the way that I explained it to you, just when when you and I had spoke on the phone the first time, I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like that's the missing link in the chain. Like that just it pieces it together for me to understand. It is actually paid. It is actually applied. Now the difference is um, where the distinction is drawn in the second half of that verse, where it says, "Especially to those that believe." And to me, that it just draws a whole nother level of, of the conversation when you put it that way. But now, I, I want to say this. Out of everything that you just explained, I do think there's a lot to grasp in there and um, what you had to say about the effects of sin. But I, I would ask this, and for those of you who are viewing, so those of you who are listening, Scott, can you give us an illustration um, to help, or something rather, to help us understand these two ideas and these two consequences better so that we'll understand the, the view of the atonement better as well. Yes, yes. I, I have an illustration that I think works well. Um, I can't see myself right now, so can you see this cup? Yep, let me put the screen on, uh, the camera on you, and then we'll get the full screen for you. <laughs> um, so I use a styrofoam cup. It represents Adam in his initial sinless state as God designed him. Okay. So Adam then sins. So he's all marred up now from sin. He's uh, no longer what he's supposed to be. And because he disobeyed God, God gave the, the penalty. Because he disobeyed God, Adam and, and all people, they die. So they pass off the scene and are buried, uh, returning to dust and so forth. So then at the resurrection now, which Christ has paid for, we have some people that never came to faith. They still got all the sinfulness to them. Hmm. We've got other people that did come to faith. They are remade as God intended. And so now this one, the one that's been remade, they are righteous in God's sight. They, they get to move on into glory and be with him. But the one that is still marred by sin, they've been resurrected. God paid for them to come out of death, but they're still trying to stand in their own works, their own righteousness, and it's all sinfulness in God's sight. So God looks at this and goes, you are not how I designed you. So he's, he, in his judgment, he is judging not a legal judgment. That was already done with physical death. He is looking at the natural 
person here now going, this person is worthless. They deserve to be destroyed. They are not what I made them to be. And so they exist now in eternity in this everlasting destruction as God's wrath is poured out on them for that. So does that help kind of illustrate the two different types of judgment? I think it does. Um, I think there's, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of theology behind uh, that illustration, um, I think, in relation to what we're talking about um, with sin and the extension of the atonement, and uh, especially in, in the results of the resurrection um, in comparison to the just versus the unjust. You can see that in the form of that resurrected body. Um, and, you know, I, I, w- I couldn't help but think ab- about this while you, when you were poking holes in that cup. Um, I, I thought to myself, I, and this is, it, it may be silly, but it's, I think it, it, it's really illustrative for um, how people view sin, how people view different theological aspects of sin and the effects of sin. And, and, and you put it, I think, in a really good way when you said that it's, it's, it's a marring aspect that Adam is marred. Um, and in relation to every single person, the, the, the just and the unjust, we all have a sin, a sin problem. We've all got holes in our theology somewhere. We've all got holes in our, our, our views of ourselves. Um, and, and I think coming to the recognition of uh, what, what the solution to that problem is, is it's got to be Christ. I don't think there's any um, undervaluing of what the value of Christ and the extension of the atonement is. The only difference between those two is going to be the element of faith and uh, whether the, that resurrected body is going to be um, a body that is, is going to be under a new form, under a new creation, um, or not. And, and I think that when you crumbled it up, I, I thought about the destruction of the body and everlasting destruction. You, you can loot. You, then you get into a whole other conversation about how can the body be destroyed without being annihilated, um, and, and I think that it comes down to kind of what that illustration shows, um, that you can lose the form. There's some element of the form that could be lost there. But anyways, in, in regard to this conversation, that's kind of, that's kind of what I've got on, on the feedback for that illustration. Is there anywhere you want to kind of correct me or, or, um, uh, no, 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 okay. I don't think so. I mean, uh, part of the reason I use a, a styrofoam cup is just the idea that you know a cup's designed to hold liquid, and if it's punched through with holes, right. okay. it can't it can't do what it's designed to do anymore. I see. And that's the same way. God created man to reflect Him, to be like Him. Well, if man isn't going to be that in eternity, then God has no use for that person, and in fact is angry that that person has chosen not to not to accept his gift that he gave of paying for their resurrection yeah. and angry about the fact that they didn't, you know, they're still enemies of his, that they don't want to have anything to do with what he wanted for them. That's good, so. man. I think that illustration is helpful. Um, for those of you who are watching or listening, let us know what you thought. And I do want to challenge you, Scott. I know that we were, the plan was to move into some more biblical support, um, but we did have a lot of comments that came in and uh, some of those, a lot of these comments were challenging. Um, and so what I decided to do was pick a couple of the objections to, to your view 
um, and kind of I'd like to throw these at you and get your take on them. The first um, for the first category of the objections, let me quote one of our listeners. His name is David Finney. Uh, David says you can you can come up with all the five syllable words that you want. The story of the crucifixion is what it is. You can't just arbitrarily redefine it to suit your own philosophical struggles 2,000 years later. So, Scott, I've got to ask you, how would you respond to this comment here? And is this actually a new idea and uh, so not actually worthy of consideration? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, no, the five-syllable word thing is, you know. <laughs> but, uh well, it's true that my own philosophical struggles is what led me to this. Those struggles came out of the fact that there were the major issues of the other views, like I just outlined in the last podcast and just talked about a little while ago, uh, as what I feel like my contribution is to this uh, discussion. And so my goal was to resolve those issues. And if people are fine, with the issues their view has, you know, if particularists, you know, really don't care that they're not reading the universal texts as universal, I, I'm not going to probably change their mind. And if, and if a provisionalist really doesn't want to admit that a substitution requires an actual exchange be occurring. So there'll be an actual effect. I, I may not be able to change their minds. I'm not likely to convince them otherwise on their views, I guess is what I'm trying to say, unless they're willing to, step back and think about it. Yeah. Um, but it's not a new idea, Josh. It's, it's at least not in the broad concept. Now I've stated for me, it was new in a new way to look at atonement. And it was born from my reading of scripture with those issues in the back of my mind. But in my dissertation research, what I discovered was my view was shaping up really to be a refinement of what is a long-standing train of thought throughout Christian history. So there's men who tied the resurrection of all people to Christ's atonement in a penal substitutionary relation and referred to this in a salvific sense. So my dissertation has a whole chapter on this. And, and then from my patristic research. I've also added a couple of men since the time I wrote my dissertation, and I published that in the journal article that's also out there on academia.edu uh, website. So uh, I don't want to go into the details of these people. If, if you want details, read those sources. But I will list the people who so far have met my criteria as having what I call a proto-pananastastic view of atonement, within history. So from the patristics, the church fathers, Athanasius of Alexandra, Alexandria, 4th century, Hilary of Poitiers, also 4th century, Cyril of Alexandria, 5th century, and Theodore Mopsustia of 5th century. And then in the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas, 13th century. Then post-Reformation, we have, I, I break these down into their categories that, that I use. So the partialists of the partialists, we have John Wesley in the 18th century and William Burt Pope in the 19th century. Of particularists, or maybe I should say nearly particularists, since he's obviously acknowledging some universal aspect in this, uh, Robert Jefferson Breckinridge, 19th century. And then provisionalists, Robert Leitner, he was 
20, 20th and 21st century. He just passed away a couple of years ago. And then Gary Schultz is 21st century. He's written a book, uh, The Multi-Intention View of Atonement. And so of these men, they meet my qualifications. I see. Um, now, I did not see all of that in the dissertation. I know that you said that these are guys that you have that that you've researched more and you've come up with uh, post dissertation. So, my request to you is, let's get the whole dissertation and all the additional information put into a book so I can read the whole thing and, <laughs> and all the extra work that you've put into it. So, well, all anyways. those men, all those men are in the dissertation except for uh, the last two patristic ones that I, I noted. Oh, okay. So. Um, so you gotta go back and read it again. <laughs> Find that see? chapter. Look at that, man! You're calling me out again. Okay, so now here's my question: What do you mean that these these guys um, actually held a uh, proto pan anastastic view uh, when it comes to the atonement? Okay, so to be clear, I'm not claiming that these men have or do hold my exact view of atonement. Okay, okay? when I say they have matched my criteria for a proto-pananastasic view. I'm primarily referring to where they place the bodily resurrection in relation to atonement based on five specific criteria. So number one, do they give indication in their writings that they consider physical death at least a consequence or effect of sin, but even better if they make a statement related to it being a legal penalty for sin? Then number two, do they give indication in their writings that at least one aspect of Christ's atonement is of a penal substitutionary nature? And then number three, do they give indication in their writings that this substitutionary aspect of Christ's death is tied to the resurrection of all people? And then number four, do they give indication in their writings that resurrection is at some level salvific? What I mean by that is, do they understand the resurrection as part of what God is doing to save people from the effects of sin? The reason that's important, let me say, is uh, particularists, particularly, <laughs> will often talk about the general grace of God and so forth, but they'll say they'll often say that He's done nothing salvific for them. And so that's why that is important to my concepts here. And then fifth, final point was, do they give indication in their writings that even though the resurrection is salvific, they do not consider the resurrection to be the totality of what God has done for a person to be saved in the fullest sense of the term from their sins. So in other words, they acknowledge the fact that it's not just about the physical resurrection, that there is something more that needs to happen as well. Okay. So um, let me ask you one question. When you were looking at the criteria, um, if this is the criteria, and you were looking for men to meet that criteria, um, did did they have to meet all five points of this criteria, or was it a certain number of these five points? Pretty much, they had to meet all five points. I see. Uh, there's, I think, there's a one or two places where a point by a person is maybe a little bit less clear. Okay. Uh, so, it, you know, it's, it's hard when you're dealing with, with writings of men 
especially the early men in the patristics, because for one, atonement wasn't it what they were focused issue. on. Yeah. yeah. And so you've got to read through a lot and, and piece together things there. And it it's that's why there may be more men of that era that could have qualified, but their writings just either I haven't read them yet yeah. or they just don't exist in such a form that I, that one can really tell for sure what their views were. I see. So yeah, if, if these five evidences are found in a person's writings, then I'm basically maintain that they hold some form of what I'm calling a proto Pan-Anastasic view of atonement. So proto meaning they held these ideas before I published my research in defending a more logical, in my mind, articulation of atonement and resurrection in my Pan-Anastastic view. So in the case of the last men that I noted from the post-Reformation group, you, you'll notice again, I, I labeled them based off their what they do believe, basically, whether they're particularist, partialist, or provisionalist. But um, the fact that I found these five evidences in their writings shows me they were being, in my mind, inconsistent with their position. In other words, one of those things I was trying to resolve in in the logic or the universality of the text of scripture or universalism or whatever, they were breaking their own rules in some sense by making the statements they were making. So the particularist example has obviously recognized a universal salvific intent and effect in the atonement, even though for all their intents and purposes, the man was a particularist. For the partialist examples, they failed to recognize the wholeness of Christ, of what Christ's death as a substitute does to release men from death. And then for the provisionalists, the examples failed to acknowledge the objectively effectual nature of substitution, even for the unbelievers. So it's something more than just merely provisional. Now, yes, you could say it's provisional towards final salvation because we need the resurrection for a final salvation but that's not the way provisionalists articulate what they mean by provision so uh avoiding these inconsistencies of course is what led down my path of discovery for this i see okay so contrary to um the objection that i just gave to your new view quote-unquote new view there's there's a significant bit of history behind the core idea of the atonement, atonement which uh, is purchasing the resurrection. So, however, I would say this. It seems to me that you're missing a few big names here. We're missing, just to give a few examples, we're missing John Calvin. We're missing Martin Luther. Uh, we're missing some of the big name guys that you need to have in here. So if you're going to have any credibility to this view, you've got to have someone bigger to back you up here. Scott, what do you have to say about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, there, there is a fair bit of history behind the core of what I'm arguing. And I think this area is ripe for research, uh, further research, as there's still a number of people to be examined. As to Calvin and Luther, I've not been able to connect either one of them with all five points, at least in what I've uh, found so far. Neither one seems to spend much time in discussion on what kind of relation there is or is not with Christ's atonement to bodily resurrection in general. Uh, but I've not exhausted all their writings yet of those men. And 
you know, even if they did not recognize the connection that I'm advocating for here, in my mind, that only shows an area of failure in their theology. Uh, They're men just like I am, uh, so they can miss things too. Uh, the, The Bible is... Well, actually, and well, let me say too. This just occurred to me that uh, part of the argument between people about John Calvin's position, whether or not he was really limited atonement or not, is because he makes some statements that do seem to imply more universal, and others that apply more limited, and and I think that's showing he's still wrestling and trying to figure yeah. out how to read these scriptures. You know, so, I actually, that same thought popped into my head when you said that. And uh, I, I wasn't going to say anything. You brought it up. But I, I do think that it is interesting to consider the limited atonement view of even Calvin himself. Because if you read his commentary on Isaiah 53, he literally says that Christ it was the payment for the sins of all men. And that when it says all men, it literally means all men in, in Isaiah 50. But that's that's neither here nor there. Or right. Many. Well, I mean, that's why there's arguments that go on as to what was Calvin's actual position. So yeah. not just that verse, there's other verses too. Um, so, but the Bible really is the only standard to judge theological correctness by. So, you know, what other people see within scripture just helps affirm or not whether what we're seeing was recognizable to others. And I've demonstrated that what I'm seeing has been recognized before and is still recognized today. So if Calvin and Luther are ultimately not able to be classified as proto-pananastostic, I'm fine with that. And really, I kind of expect it because I think their failure to recognize this aspect of atonement in the patristic writings, uh, leaning they lean heavily on St. Uh, Augustine, who as of yet, I also have not tied to all five points in the criteria. Is That's likely a huge reason or a huge part of the reason that atonement's tie-in to resurrection has not had the prominence in post-Reformation atonement debates that I think it should have had, nor the recognition of the theological truthfulness of it that I think it should receive. So while some limited, or I should say while some unlimited, atonement advocates have called on the general resurrection as sort of a brief line item biblical proof to defend a universal atonement against a limited particular atonement, they've done so without establishing the logical connection between the two and without expressing the fullness of the biblical support for the connection. And that's really more of a, a point towards those provisionalists like Robert Leitner and Gary Schultz, who do point to the universal resurrection as being related to the atonement, but not carrying that to the logical conclusion that there's something more provisional in that aspect. And so my research is seeking really to fill that gap in this ongoing discussion, post-Reformation debate on the atonement, and specifically how it would relate to our salvation from our physical death. I see. Um, so I've got one more challenge for you. As I was going through and I was trying to come up with some of these main, uh, some of the main objections, some of the main concerns, this one kind of got my attention. Um, I know you wrote about it in your dissertation, um, but I'm really looking forward to putting it out there for those who have, who will or um, have come across um, some thoughts along this line. 
And uh, this is the, the, the second great objection that I came across. It, I don't remember exactly where it came across and, and what forum it was. I took a screenshot of the actual um, comment, but I can't remember where it was or I would tell you guys. But anyways, here it is. It says, how is this any different from the Mormon soteriology? And then he goes on to say, he says, it's not. This is the same Mormon doctrine repackaged for Christians and it should be rejected. So, Scott, I've got to ask you, is this true? And uh, is this just Mormon soteriology repackaged for Christians? I think that's, it seems to be a pretty hefty charge if that's the case. So, if you would, let's get your answer on that. No, no, Josh, it is not Mormon doctrine repackaged. Uh, Now, however, that potential charge was something I anticipated. And so, one of the appendices in my dissertation actually addresses this specific point. What is similar to Mormon teaching is that they tie the bodily resurrection of all people to Christ's atonement, and they do emphasize this in their soteriology. And so when I stumbled across that in my dissertation research, I was initially shocked, mainly because one can find a fair bit of discussion online from the Mormon viewpoint on this, while conservative evangelicals have not emphasized the resurrection in their writings, obviously. Uh, So, as I just demonstrated, this tying of resurrection to atonement has had a long history in Christian theology prior to Mormonism ever even arising. So in that aspect of Mormon theology, they, in my view, I would say, actually have some pretty good company. Uh, Truth often hides amidst error. That's kind of what Satan does. And on this point, I think the the biblical and historical theology evidence shows that there is a strong merit to tie the atonement to the resurrection. The Mormons just happened to recognize this, and it fits well into their soteriology. And if one thinks about it, it really should fit well within our own Christian theology as well. So I see. So I want to kind of piggyback that um, there— there would be some similarities, some differences, but if 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 panastasism is is not Mormon doctrine repackaged, then can you tell us what is different? All right. Well, the similarities pretty much end with the connection of resurrection to atonement. Okay. Now, uh, I'm not an expert on Mormon soteriology, uh, but for my dissertation, I did utilize. Um, Sky Kerrigan's, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing especially his first name correctly because his first name is spelled C-K-Y. His PhD dissertation from a Southern Baptist school, he um, helped helped me isolate some of the distinctions because he did study out, uh, well, really their Christology, uh, but within that he was also discussing some of their soteriology. Now, I think that uh, Kerrigan came at his analysis with a provisionalist perspective of atonement, uh, from what I can tell. And if Kerrigan's analysis is generally correct about Mormon soteriology, then there's at least six distinctions from panastasism. And they are, number one, the foundations are different. So Mormonism, while using the Bible, appears to extensively use their extra-biblical revelations to defend their view about the bodily resurrection tying to the atonement. In contrast, panastasism, my view, expresses the truth of atonement's relation to resurrection from a purely biblical argument, which, while we have gotten into a little bit of that tonight, it 
obviously appears that we're not going to get to the meat of my biblical point probably until the next podcast. But then, so number one was the, the difference in foundations. Number two, the nature of atonement is different. So Mormonism does not appear to hold, or at least does not admit to holding, to a penal substitutionary view of atonement. And it also holds that Christ's atonement only relates to uh, universally to Adam's sins effect on humanity and not to an individual's sins. Now, Pan-Anastasism holds the biblical and traditional Protestant view that the atonement has a penal substitutionary aspect, and further, that this aspect directly relates to individual sins as well. Number three, uh, third difference is the allowed timing of the application of individual atonement is different. So Mormonism allows for post-mortem atonement. That is an application of individual atonement after a person has already died. Pan-Anastasism holds the biblical and traditional view that faith and salvation are only achievable before one dies. Uh, the fourth difference is the locus of the atonement is different. So Mormonism places the location of the atoning act not at the death of Christ, but rather with his suffering and bleeding prior to his death, and primarily in the Garden of Gethsemane. Pananastasism holds the biblical and traditional view that atonement occurs in relation to Christ's death and shedding of blood on the cross. And then the fifth difference is the obtaining of the fullness of salvation is different. So Mormonism rejects the idea of Individual salvation by faith alone, faith is a part of the process, and places a high emphasis on a works-based salvation. Pan-Anastasism holds the biblical and traditional view that an, individually, an individual is finally and fully saved by faith. And then, obviously, with Christ's atoning work as the action behind that faith as well, but saved by faith alone. The final and sixth difference is uh, the destiny of the unrighteous is different. So Mormonism believes that the unrighteous will not uh, face. Well, hold on. I lost my place here. Mormonism uh, believes the unrighteous will not face God's wrath but rather live in a telestial or like earthly-like kingdom that is still far better than our present earth. And Pan-Anastasism holds the, the biblical and traditional view that God's wrath abides forever on the unrighteous. So there's no doubt um, that there's probably more distinctions that I could make between the two, and some you know that I'm not fully aware of since, like I said, I'm, I'm not an expert on Mormon soteriology. Uh, but these six, I think, provide clear evidence that Mormon doctrine does not align with Pan-Anastasism, nor with the biblical principles that are so important to uh, theologically conservative evangelicals. So my understanding of atonement did not derive from Mormon doctrine, and I didn't even become aware of the Mormon doctrine uh, connection until a few years after my initial biblical investigations into the ties that I had found uh, during my PhD research. So it's not a repackaged form of that. And instead, I would say my view is an attempt to 
logically refine the precise relationship of atonement to resurrection in the salvation process of God and in accord with the Bible's statements on the matter and in accord with a number of Christian theologians throughout history that have recognized some effectual salvific relation between these two. Okay, so thank you. That's a pretty in-depth answer to that question. And for those of you guys who are watching and listening, we do want to encourage you once again, send in your questions, your comments. Uh, we would like to engage with those and some of the, uh, some of the, some of the bigger objections that uh, would require a bit more of an answer like you've seen tonight. So be sure you send those to us um, either in the voicemail, email, Facebook, YouTube, any, any platform um, that you would like to reach us. But um, Scott, I do want to ask you, I think that we're going to wrap it up for this podcast, this episode tonight, and uh, then um, get into episode three. Uh, so if you could kind of just give a conclusion and wrap up, what, what is it that we were trying to accomplish in this particular episode, and what are we going to talk about in, in the upcoming episode? Well, we were trying to clear up some things that people had questioned about the prior episode. You know, what what was I really trying to solve? Uh, how did that come about? How do I avoid uh, a double jeopardy argument of paying for sin twice? Uh, these objections about the historical nature, you know, thinking it's a really new thing uh, when really it's not all that new of an idea, uh, whether it was just Mormon doctrine repackaged or not. So we covered a number of objections there and through that did hit on some biblical points, especially with uh, the nature of death there, I think in the old Testament and specifically as the penalty for sin and some of the other points later regarding second death and so forth. So those are kind of some of the things that, that we covered tonight. And then hopefully this next time, then we'll, we may still field a few questions within our discussion, but I, I definitely want to give a more proactive, uh, positive uh, points to where I see this pananastastic view fitting into Scripture. Yeah. So trying to go over some passages and some concepts scripturally that, that help defend the point of view. Uh, one thing... Too, I have set up an email account, uh, pananastasism at gmail.com, that people can uh, email me directly with questions about pananastasism. And uh, for those that need a spelling again, it's P-A-N-A-N-A-S-T-A-S-I-S-M. So that's another way of getting questions directly to me. There you go. Uh, Good. Well, hey, thanks again for coming on with us for Thank part you. two. It's good to have you. I'm really looking forward to episode three. I know there's a lot of you who are who have watched uh, episode one and uh, who are watching episode two that you're going to be looking forward to getting into the scriptural analysis of uh, Pananastasism and uh, this relation to the extent of the atonement conversation. Um, so stay with us. Stay tuned. Send in your questions, your comments, and We'll go from there. But Scott, thanks again for coming on, and we will see you. When is it we're doing it? Is it this Friday? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, don't know whether we're doing it live or pre-recorded uh, at that particular time, but that's when we're scheduled to be together. We'll get that nailed down. <laughs> so uh, it'll, it will be coming out soon. Stay tuned. Um, it should be sometime this week. If, if, if it's not Friday, it'll be Saturday. Um, I think that I kind of like doing the pre-recorded 
side of it because if for whatever reason there's some sort of a technology glitch, we can edit that out. Um, just some of the problems that we've come across um, in doing it live. For instance, last episode, for those of you who viewed it live, you had about a six or seven minute lag at the very beginning. Um, so we don't want to keep you waiting. We value your time um, and hopefully want to value your time as much as you do. I understand um, how important that is when you're trying to sit down and listen to a podcast and not have to just sit there and listen to nothing for up to six or seven minutes. So anyways, Scott, thanks again. Have a good night and we will catch you later this week. All right. All right, guys. Have a good night too. I'm going to cut over to our closing scene and, uh, give you a few announcements. So this is good. Uh, you get a little bit more of a background uh, for what Pananastasism is actually teaching answering some of the main objections that we got after the first episode uh, with some of the big questions that I think uh, need answers and I think you got some good answers. If you have any more questions, I've, I've said it once, I've said it twice, send them in to us. We want to engage with you and uh, really dialogue with this particular topic. Um, upcoming episodes next, uh, later this week, we're going to release episode three, which is going to get into the scriptural support. I think that's going to really uh, be kind of the meat of where this uh, where this argument originates. You've got the historical, you've, you've got some of, uh, you've got the historical account, you've got some of the main um, comparisons of the different atonement views and how this compares there. So now we're going to get into the scripture, and this is, I know where a lot of you Bible nerds like myself um, are really going to try to analyze this and break it down. Is that actually what what the text is saying? So um, that'll be interesting, and we're looking forward to doing that. Obviously, October 30th is going to be an episode with Jeff Riddle, and uh, we're going to get into the confessional text, what that is, how that relates to um, the, the movement that's going across America right now. Then we'll have James Snap to kind of give a, a, a counter perspective um, on the text of scripture as well. So stay tuned, guys. We really appreciate um, you uh, joining us live um, and uh, engaging with the content of what we're doing on this podcast. So thanks again. God bless and have a good night.